Well, let's pray and we'll go ahead and get started. Can you all hear me okay? Is this microphone doing, Joe, is it doing what it's supposed to do? Okay. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful um, that we have opportunity to meet together, talk about your word together. I pray that um, you will help us as we read, as uh, we pour our minds and souls into understanding your word. Would you teach us about yourself and your son? And would you um, take full control of our lives as we spend more time with you and your word? And around the people that we encounter, that you will use us as you see fit, Lord, your kingdom's purposes. And we pray for the time, the next 45, 50 minutes that we have, that it will, um, that it will be clear that your word is revealing the Christ. We want him to be uh, magnified as the authors of these texts wanted in their original writings, in Christ's name, amen. So first week we did uh, the composition of the Hebrew Bible, very quick review. I would very much like if some of the youth would be uh, able to help me uh, with a couple of these. Most of you were here for the composition session. So uh, somebody from the back tell me about uh, the Hebrew Bible. How many sections are there of the Hebrew Bible? Okay, you're not a youth person. <laughs> I said youth. Okay, so three sections, and we learned those are Torah. Yes, everybody can help now. Second section was? The Nevi'im, the prophets. And the third section was writings, the Ketuvim. Three sections. And, of course, there were no books in the days that these things were written. They were written on scrolls. Um, they didn't, uh, there's really no evidence of codices until much later. And so there were literary ways of holding these texts together, right? So... Um, we read out of the book of John how many people in the New Testament were sensitive to the way the composition of the Hebrew Bible was put together. In fact, it controlled a lot of the way they thought. And I might add to that, I think it should control more the way we think, frankly. So they were expecting something, right? At the end of the Torah, the Deuteronomy 34.10 says... They were to look, be expectant for, help me, anybody, the prophet like Moses. At the end of the second section of the Hebrew Bible, the prophets, the last book is Malachi, and Malachi says to expect a prophet like Elijah. So when we get to the book of John, and they go out to talk to John the Baptist, they ask him these questions, right? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Where are these questions coming from? That They were sensitive to, what, to the way the scriptures themselves are held together. Now, the next book, after the end of each of these sections, also has a literary link, does it not? What is Joshua told in Joshua 1.8 to do? By Moses, he tells them, Haggah, yes? To meditate on the scriptures, yes. And then we get to the end of Malachi, we expect a prophet like Moses, and then what's the next book? Psalms. And how is the happy man in Psalms pictured? What is he doing? Meditating on scripture, right? So there are literary linkages between the major sections there, and they are inherently messianic. So when we get to John chapter 6, and it pictures Jesus as 
going across the sea and up the mountain and leading the Passover and providing bread for the people, it's no wonder in verse 14 that they say, this is the prophet. What do they mean by that? The prophet we've been looking for. In fact, when Stephen is giving his testimony before he's stoned in Acts chapter 7, he says, identifies the prophet out of Deuteronomy 18, the same prophet that it expected at the end of the book. He says, this is Jesus. And you rejected and killed him just like you did the other prophets. And how they respond to that? They killed him. Yeah. Okay, so that was week one. Week two, um, we did the garden in Eden. And so we talked about the borders of the garden. And then we spent the rest of our time talking about the importance of this in the rest of the scriptures. So um, I just wanted to take you, as we start this, we're working our way toward the poems. I wanted to take you um, uh, for a little review here out of Isaiah. Uh, So actually, let's start in the New Testament. And then we'll work our way backwards. So maybe we don't have to turn to this. Uh, Let me ask you guys. Um, In Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, John is seeing something expected coming. And what exactly is that that he is seeing and hoping for? Out of chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth, right? The new Jerusalem. And then if you're wondering what John's thinking of, you just got to keep reading. Because in chapter 22, we learn that this new heavens and this new earth, this new creation that he's hoping for, has a tree of life there. And there is no curse there. And we are ruling with Christ there. Now, where does all that come from? The Garden of Eden. And so we went to the book of Isaiah, went to the book of Ezekiel, and we saw... This expectation in the prophetic literature all the way through the New Testament. In fact, after we read Ezekiel, we saw that these things are held together in the text. There's this hope for the Spirit coming to indwell, tied to a change of behavior. And then the land is changed into a garden like Eden. Ezekiel 36, we read that last week. And then I read you out of Romans chapter 8. Paul says like six times in three verses, if the Spirit of God is in you, then you belong to Him. The whole idea that the Spirit has come to indwell. And then the middle section of chapter 8 is the creation groans for its restoration. So the idea in Paul's mind, these things are tied together. The hope of the Spirit coming and the hope of this new creation. I read it to you out of 2 Peter. So we went to a lot of different places. I want you to see that the Garden of Eden is on the minds of these authors. And the language there is the language of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. The New Testament authors are hoping for it. The Old Testament authors are hoping for it. And let me just uh, finish it by saying this. I think it should be something that we should hope for. If the biblical authors are paying so much attention to the hope for a new creation, Peter says it this way, if these things are to be so in the future, how ought we to behave in expectation of these things coming? It changes perspective. It's it's a view of reality that the biblical authors are presenting to us. And so we're left with a decision, right? The decision we have to make is, will we make up our own thinking about the future, or will we make our thinking line up with the way the biblical authors are thinking about the future? So I think we should line up with them. Okay, so um, I've taken 11 minutes to do that, and that's a little more time than I should have. Um, But I did want to show you a little bit of the language here out of Isaiah 65 and 66 so that you can um, start thinking in terms of the language so that when you see it 
as we go to the Torah, you'll recognize it. So I want to do a little exercise with you, okay? So we've been talking about the importance of the events that occur in the Garden of Eden. And the first big poem we want to talk about is in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 3. It's not the first poetic unit. The first poetic unit is where Adam says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is a major unit, verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3. This is the curse on the serpent and the hope for the seed of a woman that is going to be, we're going to track that seed in detail next week. But this week, I want you guys to see that the poems of the Torah, the major poetic units, are in fact helping us as we read the storylines to think about this coming seed. This is what we're supposed to be thinking about when we're reading about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's sons. We're supposed to be saying, is this the guy? Is this the guy? Is this the guy? It's supposed to keep us... The author is a genius. He, he is intending to keep us engaged with the story. For all of history, the intent there, anyone reading these texts should be able to engage with this, looking for the seed that's coming. Okay, so let's do a little exercise. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 65. Hold your finger there on Isaiah 65. Hold it right there. Just put your hand there. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Okay. So Isaiah 11, 1 uh, Incidentally, does, does your Bible have in the margin little stars by verses that are supposedly messianic? Does anybody have that? Little stars? You have stars by those? Yeah, mine does too. Um, verse 1 here says, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? David's daddy, right? And um, next week we're going to follow this all the way through, okay? But you guys know this already, right? The Messiah is expected to come through the line of David, right? So this is messianic, inherently messianic chapter. And the images here are um, remarkable. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 6 through nine out loud and as I do I want you to follow Isaiah 65 verse 25 now please make note that this verse at the end of Isaiah 65 is at the end of a beautiful description of the new heavens and the new earth it starts in verse 17 okay so you're looking at verse 25 in Isaiah 65, I'm reading out of Isaiah 11. Y'all ready? Verse 6 says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Are y'all following that in Isaiah 65? All right, now, the next few words are not going to be there. He says, The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. Images of this new heavens and new earth. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. Here it comes now. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. You see it? Okay, now I'm going to read a couple more lines that won't be there. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. Here comes another one. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Do you all see it? Now, that's the order out of Isaiah 11. 
What did I miss out of Isaiah 65? Something about the serpent? Now, what is the author of Isaiah got in mind? What's he thinking about here? This is the beautiful language of Isaiah about the new heavens and the new earth. What's he inserted here? What's on his mind? The Garden of Eden. Yeah. He's, he's got in mind the curse of the serpent. Yes. Now, we find this in other places. It's in Psalm chapter 72 at the end of one of the major sections of Psalms. And I love finding things like this because it, it's a tip, right? It's a little clue as to what's going on in the author's mind. The author has written this beautiful language, Messianic language in 11, this beautiful language about the new heavens and the new earth. And here we have an insert. It's coming right out of the poem in Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're headed. Dust will be the serpent's food. What's this new heavens and new earth going to be like? It's going to be like the fulfillment of the poem from Genesis chapter 3. Okay, now last place in Isaiah. Turn all the way back to the beginning of the book, chapter 2, because I want you to hear some other language here. Okay, so I have, I have some of my college students here tonight. So, no, you're not a college student. Um, I have some college kids over here, and they know about this. Some of you may know about this. If you don't know about it, by the time I'm done in the next 30 minutes, you're going to be going, you've got to be kidding me. Right? People say the Old Testament is about history and Judaism. That is not what the Old Testament is about. The stories and poems of the New Testament are as much, if not more, looking toward the future than the New Testament is. So that's what you're going to get out of this. Now, if I wanted to say in Hebrew something about the future, the end of all things, what would that Hebrew phrase sound like, Andrew? That's close. Yes. Baharit Hayamim. And what does that mean? At the end of the days, yes. So we're going to find this in several places. I'm going to mention some of them. We're not going to turn to all of them. But y'all, everywhere we find that Hebrew phrase in the Hebrew Bible, there is something really significant there. It's a really important um, phrase. The end of days. Now, your Bible might say in the latter times or in the latter days, but literally the phrase means in the end of the days, at the end of all things. This is one of the literary things that holds the poetry of the Torah together. Three of the major poems have this phrase as their context. Okay, so I got your attention. Isaiah chapter 2 says, The word which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it will come about that Baaharit Hayamim, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up. That phrase is the last phrase of the Hebrew Bible in Second Chronicles. Let us go up. Perfect way to introduce Matthew chapter 1. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the Torah will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, They will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. 
the context for the end of days here. Do you all hear the language, how beautiful that is? Now, what exactly is happening on the mountain of the Lord? What is he doing there? He's judging. What else is he doing? He's teaching. Yeah, the image here is of a great judge and teacher. And all the nations are streaming to him. Now, at the end of the book of Isaiah, all these nations are streaming to him and they are bowing down before him. And tell me Paul didn't pick that up in Philippians. Yeah? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. This is the image out of Isaiah. He's teaching them. Now, let me show you some other things that are going to be going on there. Turn over to Isaiah 25. We'll start this in verse 6. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. Now, you can make yourself crazy trying to figure out how this might work, right? How many people are we talking about? I I don't know. It's it's billions, I suppose. (laughs) All the nations have streamed here. The Lord is judging and teaching. And now we're learning some more about what's going on there. God has prepared a banquet here. A banquet of aged wine. I'm sorry, Baptist. There may be wine there. That's what it says. Choice pieces with marrow, refined aged wine. And on this mountain, watch this, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples. Now that Hebrew word for covering is very interesting. It's like the covering on the sheaf of a sword. It's something that hides something. So the image here is though all of us, as we currently stand, have got some kind of covering and we cannot see clearly. But at the end of days, when the Lord is there teaching Torah and judging the nations, and there is peace, lasting peace, forever, and we rule with him, the cover's removed. And now we can see clearly. That is a beautiful image. And the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. Anybody going to be dying there? And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. This is what's going on. Ba'aharit hayamin at the end of days. Okay, so now I've got two things in your head, right? I got the serpent's image, and I got the end of days phrase um, tucked in um, to those. All right, so let's go to Genesis 3. Here's the first poem. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you, apart from or more than all the cattle, and apart from or more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The belittling curse, serpent on his belly. It's interesting how the other biblical authors pick that up. Did you hear it already today? It's in the new creation language in Isaiah 65. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head or crush. You shall bruise him on the heel. Now this poem sets the backdrop for following the seed of the woman through the rest of the Bible. And we're going to do a lot of that together next week because it's not difficult to follow the story. But this week, um, I want to just give you a taste of it just so I can get to the second poem, all right? So 
Um, Will number three on your handout now. So the reader's going to pay special attention to the seed of a woman. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 begins. This is the book of generations of Adam in the day when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. And we're going to get a list of men. I love the way they're described. I love the way they're described later in the chapter. These are men, mighty men of renown. In chapter 6, verse 4, I Very interesting. They're famous guys. And I would say so. They are famous. So we can track them easily, name by name by name, how long they lived, etc. Look at how Noah is described in verse 29. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Do you see how the author is teasing you there? This is to engage us. Who do you think Noah might be now? If you're just reading the story for the first time, who do you think he might be? This is the guy, right? This is the guy who's going to reverse the curse. It's interesting because in Hebrew, the two letters that make his name in reverse are the Hebrew word for grace. Fascinating language. So it says in verse 32, Noah was 500 years old and he became the father of three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, it's not hard to follow the genealogies. Look over chapter 11. Pick this up in verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and he became the father of Arpachshad. And then we get a list of guys. And look down in verse 26. Name to name to name to name. Terah lived 70 years, became the father of Abram. And then chapter 12 begins the story of Abram. Now, what does the author want us to do with the story of Abram then? What are you supposed to be expecting now? You have been able to follow name by name by name. Is Abram the guy? That's the question. That the text demands, I believe. And it gets richer than this, right? Because in verse 3 of chapter 12, at the end of the verse, well, at the beginning it says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, if you're reading the Torah at this point, in what way would you expect Abraham to bless all the families of the earth? What needs to happen? We've got to take we've got to reverse the curse. Yeah. Somehow a seed of a woman's got to crush the serpent's head in the poetic language. So now when we're reading about Abram, y'all, Paul picks this up. I read it to you the first week in Galatians 3, 8. He says, this is the gospel. God told Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed in his seed. Now. Um, I'm going to run out of time tonight, Um, so I'm going to show you this right now, and then if we get to it at the end, I'll I'll detail it a little bit slower for you, all right? So from this blessing, read it again, I will bless those who bless you, the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Y'all got them in your head? I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You got it? This is the promise to Abram. Now... Turn over to Genesis 49. This is the next major poem. I'm going to slow down here in just a minute. Genesis 49. Verse 9 is about Judah. Why is Judah significant in the Old Testament scriptures? The tribe of Judah, why is it so important? This is the the tribe that Jesus is going to come from, right? And this is the promise right here. In Genesis 49, verse 9 says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Now, who is the one that gets the blessing? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. 
name? Abraham. Who is the one that gets the blessing? You're going to be a lion, a king. The king is in verse 10. You're going to couch down as a lion. You're going to, who dares rouse him? The scepter, this king image. Who is that person? Judah. Are you following this? Abraham, I have tracked to Judah now. Now, turn over to Numbers 24. This is the fourth major poetic section of the Torah, and there are several poetic units here. Balaam's oracles. As of interest to you guys, you will find Ba'aharit Hayamim in verse 14 of chapter 24. Okay, but look at verse 9 of chapter 24. This is talking about the king that's mentioned in verse 7 and 8. The individual seed, the king. It says in verse 9, he couches, he lies down as a lion. Who is that? That's Judah. As a lion who dares rouse him. Next phrase. Blessed is everyone who blesses you and curses everyone who curses you. Who is that? Do you see the genius of the author? The poetry is holding the chase or the seed together. You get reminded here. Don't forget about the promise to Abraham. And don't forget what else. The promise to Abraham. And the promise to Judah. The poem ties them together. You will never convince me. That the author did not do that on purpose. That is poetic language, and it's not easy, but there's no getting around it. That promise was to Abraham, and that promise was to Judah. This guy is interested in us paying attention to tracking the seed from the poem in Genesis 3. All right? Now let's go back. It's going to get better now. I did, on number three, I did Genesis 5 and 11 with you. The next things I've got written in there are the tracing it from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and I'm not going to do that with you. Turn to chapter 27 in Genesis. This is another one that will make your head go, you've got to be kidding me. Chapter 27, this is Isaac's blessing of Jacob. So Jacob's tricked his daddy. His mama was complicit. And now he's getting blessed. In verse 29, this is the blessing to Jacob. Now, remind me again, people... Isaac had boys, right? Who was born first? Esau. And then Jacob. And then we get the story about the reversal of the birthright, right? Jacob tricks his brother or his brother is a bonehead, whatever. Okay, I just want to remind you, how many sons did Isaac have? You just told me. It's not a trick question. Two. Yes? Okay. Verse 29 says, May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Now, wait a minute. Before we read the next phrase, if you knew about Isaiah, you got Messiah all over this one, right? Nations bowing down to you. But we don't know about Isaiah at this point. Nations. Is there another character in the storyline that we've not read about yet? That has dreams about people bowing down to him? Joseph does. I'm just trying to show you the genius of this literature. This is a foreshadowing. If you're reading it for the first time, you don't know about Joseph. And you might think to yourself, that's odd. Nations bow down to you. Then he says, be master of your, what's the word? Is there an S on it? An S on that word. You can't make that mistake in Hebrew. It's hirik 
Yod Mame. In English, you might mess up and get the S or not the S. You don't make that mistake in Hebrew. The plurals are easy to see. Brothers. Now, if I'm sitting there and I'm Jacob and my daddy's telling me, be master to your brothers, what do you want to say to daddy? Uh, Dad, it's just one. (laughs) Who are you talking about? You old man, are you crazy? It gets better. May your mother's sons, again plural, bow down to you. And then, here it is, the blessing to Abraham. Cursed are those who curse you. Blessed are those who bless you. The carrying on of the blessing from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. But we got some more now, don't we? Now, if you're reading this, you have a decision to make. Either the author made a mistake, or he's incompetent, or I'm supposed to just read over it and skip it. But I am no longer at this age of my life willing to do that. And I am also not willing to accept the idea that the author is not competent. He knew exactly what he was doing. And if you read the Joseph narrative, this is ringing out in your head. Is this Jacob or is this Joseph? Now turn over to Genesis 49. And I'm going to make it worse. This is the next major poem. After the one in Genesis 3. And it begins in verse 1. Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what is going to happen. When? Can you say it? Noel. Yes. Help her, Pete. <laughs> you said it at my house the other night. Okay. Good. That's really close. Ba'aharit. Hayamim. Yes? At the end of the days. The poem immediately takes the reader to the end of all things. And then we begin to get the story of the boys of Jacob. Reuben is disqualified. He slept with daddy's concubine. Simeon and Levi are disqualified because Dinah was raped by Shechem. And Hamor tries to cut a deal with Jacob. And the brothers get together and they say, here's what we're going to do. We'll let you marry our sister Dinah if all the men agree to get circumcised. Are you all familiar with the story? What happens? They give them about three days, right? So they are all thoroughly sore. Yes? I mean, not to be crass about this, but that was a bloody mess. Circumcising grown men with knives. They're all in a weakened condition. And what do Simeon and Levi do? They go into the town and they murder all of them. Now, we're not told at the end of that story, exactly how we're supposed to take that. Jacob fusses at his boys. He said, what are we going to do now? We've got to live here around these people. You see what a mess you've made? But we're not, it's not really interpreted for us till we get here. And we learn here, because of what they did, they're disqualified. Disqualified from what? Reuben's not the guy. Simeon and Levi are not the guys. What are they being disqualified from? They're being disqualified from being the seed, carrying on the line of the seed. And where did that start? In the poem in Genesis 3. Okay, now watch the language as we get to Judah. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Uh Uh-oh. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Now, where have we seen that? Help me. That was the blessing 
that Isaac gave to Jacob. Now, at this point in the story, if you're reading this carefully, you're going, okay, Isaac told Jacob that his, bro- his brothers are going to bow down to him, his mother's sons are going to bow-, bow down to him. That's not Jacob. So you read the Joseph narrative, and you go, that's got to be Joseph. But as it turns out, it's not Joseph, is it? Who is it? It's, it's Judah. Yeah. So it is the genius of the poetry causing the reader to invest in the stories. I got to know, is it Judah or is it Joseph? And here I'm learning this. It is actually Judah. The seed is to be traced through Judah. And you might think, well, you're nuts. Um, That's not that big a deal, Wade. Okay. Let me show you a couple places. Yeah. Judah's not a big deal. Turn over to the book of Judges. Oh, we did a little bit of this last week. Let's just start this in Numbers. Leviticus, Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10. From this point forward, from Genesis 49, anytime there's going to be a tribe highlighted, the tribe highlighted is going to be Judah. So the whole storyline of the Sinai pericope, the whole story about getting the Ten Commandments and the law codes and all that happened from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. And now it's time to go. They're going to go up the eastern side of the Jordan conquering as they go. And it says in verse 14, verse 13 of chapter 10, So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the standard, this is the people out in front, the flag bearers, the most important people of the camp of the sons of Judah, set out first. Why? The poem is having an impact on the nation. Maybe they didn't have the poem. I don't know. But it's having an impact on the text. Turn over to the book of Judges. This is the last one. We could go on and on and on with this one. But I want you to see this because it gets crazy. Judges chapter 1, verse 2. Judges 1, verse 2. The Lord said, everybody there? Judges 1, verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Verse 3. Then Judah said to Simeon. Verse 4. And Judah went up. Verse 8. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem. Verse 9. And afterward, the sons of Judah went down. Verse 10, so Judah went, do we need to keep going? I mean, is this guy's consumed with the people coming from Judah. Why? Why all the attention to Judah? Why when David gets described, is he described this way? He is the king from Judah. It certainly has an impact on Matthew. That's how he starts his gospel. Okay? Back to um, Genesis 49. I'm now number four on your handout. Three times, Genesis 49.1, Numbers 24.14, and Deuteronomy 31, all have the same Hebrew phrase. Now, I copied for you on your handout this phrase out of the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon. This is the gold standard in Hebrew lexicons. Um, my Hebrew language friend, Dr. Shepherd, gave me a copy of BDB when he left because he loves me. I don't know if he loves y'all, but he loves me. And he gave me a copy of this book. Here's the problem. The book assumes you know Hebrew. You have to know the Hebrew roots to look up words in this book. So I use computer software, and the book is, sits nicely on the shelf, unopened. Okay, so if you, if you click on this Hebrew lexicon rendering of the phrase, Ba'aharit Hayamim, it means in the end of the days. It says it's a prophetic phrase denoting the final period of history so far as the speaker's perspective reaches. The sense thus varies with the context, but it often equals the ideal or messianic future. 
So what I'm telling you is, by causing the reader to think about the end of days, the poetry of the Torah has asked us to read the narratives with the end of all things in mind. I'm not supposed to just read Abraham's story and think that's a nice little ditty about Abraham. I'm supposed to be reading about him thinking about the Christ. That's what that does to the reader. Now, many other biblical authors have picked up on this phrase, and everywhere it's used, it seems to be in an extremely important location. So I want to show you a couple of them. I listed them for you under number four on B. I read the one out of Isaiah 2 for you already. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Does anybody have in their Bible something that denotes chapter 30 as the beginning of a new section of Jeremiah or anything of that sort? Nobody has any study Bible or anything that says something there special about Jeremiah 30? Nobody? Okay, yeah, so deliverance from captivity, but does it say something about this section? Deuteronomy 30 to 33. Nobody has anything like that. What does it say? Okay, good. All right, well, this section of Jeremiah from chapter 30 to chapter 33 is a very famous section of the book known as the Book of Comfort in Jeremiah. Now, before I read you the phrase here, um, I want to read you something, and I would like for you just for a moment while I'm reading this, I'm not going to tell you this is out of Jeremiah 31, but I just want you to... Try to imagine you're hearing me read this and you don't know where I'm reading this. I'm going to read these words and you imagine, I don't know where he's reading. New or Old Testament. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they will be my people. The law is to be written on their hearts. Now Paul and the writer of Hebrews, y'all know I'm reading out of Jeremiah, quote this passage. In teaching the church about the coming of the Spirit of God, to save them, to write God's law on their heart. Now, this whole section of Jeremiah is put in the context, look at it, at the end of verse 24 and verse 30. After talking about the restoration and some of the judgment stuff here, he says, the fierce anger will not turn back until he's performed it, the intent of his heart. And then there it is at the end of verse 24. Ba'aharit hayamim. You will understand this. The context of this whole section is the end of days. Now it's also very interesting that in verse 9 of this chapter it says, but they shall serve the Lord their God and, what's your Bible say? David, their king. It's the messianic expectation. The coming king from the line of David at the end of days. Very important section in Jeremiah. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. Now, we read from Ezekiel 36 last week the promise of the coming of the Spirit tied with the restoration of all things, right? A garden like Eden, it says in 36, verse... I shouldn't have said anything because now I can't find the verse. Wade, wade, wade. 
<laughs> Thank you, 26. There it is. <laughs> uh, they will be showers of blessings. I will make the places around and the tree of the field. No, that's not. It doesn't have Eden there. Okay. I'll find it later, and we'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Landon. 35. There is no verse 35 in chapter 36. Oh, there is. I was looking the wrong chapter. <laughs> the desolate land has become like a garden of Eden. Thank you. Okay, that's enough of that. All right, look. Chapter 37 is the valley of the dry bones. What is that about, y'all? What's happening here in the vision? You've got all these dead people who are coming to life. Yes? The vision um, of chapter 37. And it's interesting because in verse 24 it says, My servant David will be king over them. And then when we get to chapter 38, we learn that this is happening. Verse 16, he's talking to Gog and Magog here. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud. It will come about, there it is, Baharit Hayamim, at the end of days, the end of all things. Same Hebrew phrase. Critical locations in the prophetic literature. Turn over to Hosea chapter 3. Uh, let me ask you a question, because I'm going to have to stop after the next one. I have to stop talking. Um, let me ask you this question, uh, because we did this in week one. How does the second section of the Hebrew Bible end? In what book? Malachi. Okay. And the books from Hosea to Malachi in the Hebrew Bible are called... The Minor Prophets, that's what we call them, right? Hebrew Bible people call these the Book of the Twelve. It's considered one book. Let me show you why it's considered one book. On your handout, on the back of your handout, you have a bunch of gibberish there to most of you. But I have red arrows on the gibberish. And I didn't do all the books, but they've all got this. Can you see that the first thing on the top is the book of Genesis? Can everybody see that? I'm in Genesis. Can everybody see I'm in Genesis on the first one? Okay, and up at the top you see like I'm in chapter 27, chapter 28. Do you all see that? Now what's significant about this place in Genesis? Look over on the left where I've got the red arrow drawn. There's a Hebrew phrase there. Now, does anybody have... Don't look. I'm going to ask because you don't. <laughs> Does anybody have anything written in the margin of this verse in chapter 27, 28? I forget the verse number in Genesis. You don't. But in the Hebrew text, it's there. And the Hebrew phrase is, It means, listen, half the verses of the book. So in the middle of the book, you roll out the scroll, right? And you're looking in the margins for clues about where to go. This is a very helpful literary tool. Right in the middle, they put this. I showed it to you in Isaiah. Can everybody see the same thing in Isaiah? Big red arrow on the left side. The middle of the verses. On the right over there is out of the book of Micah. And that's verse 12 in chapter 3 in Micah. All right, so you need to see this. Turn to... Uh, you're in Hosea. I'm going to come right back. I've got two more minutes. I'm panicked. Hosea chapter, sorry, Micah chapter 3, verse 12. This is the middle verse. But y'all, this is not the middle verse. Hosea, sorry, Micah 3, 12. Micah 3, 12. That's where you find this inscription. Hatsi Hatsafer Bapatsukim. That's by verse 12 in Micah 3. But... That is not the middle verse of the book of Micah. Does anybody want to guess what that's the middle verse of? No, you can't guess. Somebody else. That is the middle of the Minor Prophets. That is the center verse in the middle of Hosea to Malachi. Now, verse 4 of Micah starts this way. And it will come about... Ba'aharit hayamim. 
in the end of the days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. Does that sound familiar? That's a quotation right out of Isaiah 2. Micah 4 and Isaiah 2 read together. Isn't it interesting that this phrase is found in this place? It is a tip, I believe, about what the author thinks is important. Okay, so you're, you were in Hosea. I've got to show you this one, and then I'm going to shut up. Hosea chapter 3. This is the beginning of the book of Hosea. Verse 4 says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or prince. And right there I'm thinking, this author is worried about the king coming. (laughs) Without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Verse 5, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return. And seek the Lord their God. And David? He's been dead for a long time. Who's the author looking for? The Davidic seed. Yes? The coming king from the line of David. That's who he's looking for. They will seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness. When? Ba'aharit Hayamim. So um, that is just a survey to help you see the importance. In the book of Daniel, I have chapter 2 and 10 there. And those of you who know something about Daniel know that Daniel 2 is the interpretation of the first vision. Where Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill everybody and Daniel says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want a shot at this. And then Daniel begins to interpret it. And he says... The Lord has shown the king what will happen. Can you say it with me now? Ba'aharit hayamim, at the end of the days. In, at the end of the book, the last vision that Daniel has that tracks all of these empires in chapter 11. In that vision, it says that these are the events that will happen. Ba'aharit hayamim. The book of Daniel really is bookmarked with this thinking about the end of the days. It's 629. And so I'm going to stop. Next week I'm going to track the seed for you, but um, if there are, I know some of you um, are saying to yourself, oh my lands, this man is all over the map. So um, I did follow the outline pretty close, but I would be happy to address um, any questions that I can to try to clarify. Um, I hope that you sense my passion about this. Um, um, It's a change of perspective for me. I don't know, you guys walking with God all your lives, but, man, the first time somebody showed me the end of days in the poems and looking for the seed, all the New Testament authors are looking at this going, that's Jesus, man. That's the Christ. That's him. From the very beginning poem of Genesis... And it's not like they're making something out of the book that's not there. The poems focus us so that we're supposed to read the stories following and tracking that seed. Blows me away. Um, The majesty of the text, the way it's put together. How many times in my life have I read through a genealogy go, y'all do that? Not anymore. And do the ones in Ezra and Nehemiah light you up? What happens after those genealogies is crazy. It changed worship style. We follow that worship style today. Ezra, they said, bring the book of the Lord right after a genealogy. Don't skip them. <laughs> they mean something. All right, so I'm, I'm rambling. Any other questions about anything? that you've got on your mind about Genesis 3 or 49. I did slip chapter 24 in there on you. Abraham and Judah. Next week, we're going to track him. We're going to start in Genesis 3. You've already had this a couple times, and I'm going to track him to Matthew chapter 1. And the point is going to be this. The original authors of these texts 
wanted us to do that. They put their books together like they did on purpose to bring us to the Christ. I've been convinced, and I intend to try to convince you next week. So we lost some people from last week. I hope you guys will come back. The seed tracking is going to be fun. So don't miss that next week. No questions. I keep hoping somebody will say something. Great. Okay, I'll do that with you right after. See, this young lady wants to know how to pronounce the Hebrew. Yes? Well, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we're... uh,